This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come to life. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with me in the co-host studio, good to have you back, uh, Kanjana Taboriruk. Thank you. Happy to be back with humans. Yeah, yeah. And everything. We're face to face. Oh, and that, uh, those uh, dulcet tones you're hearing uh, from the left, uh, this is uh, Dr. Leslie Woodhouse. Join us. Hello. Welcome. Nice to be here. Castro Woodhouse. Nice yeah. to be back in DeKalb. Yeah, well, Y'all. I don't think I've heard that sentiment, but it's good to... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We appreciate it. Ah, come on. As, as rare as it may be, we appreciate it. No, so. yeah, we're uh, we're excited to, to have, uh, to have uh, Leslie visiting us um, for many reasons. Uh, she's... Uh, I guess we should we should get out there and let's let's sell some copies. She's uh, she's just written a new book. Um, are you gonna have you decided what you're gonna do with all the funds from this? <laughs> Will you uh, retire yeah, in the yeah. Cayman? Oh wow! Well, you know that has just to be remember uh, the little scene. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. I guess I'll set up a trust fund and okay, you know. Okay. So um, that book is uh, <laughs> "Women Between Woman Between Two Kingdoms." Dara Rasami and the Making of Modern Thailand, Cornell University Press. Congratulations! Why? Thank you. Thank you. I'm for real and everything. Yeah. Yeah. He's for those who are listening yeah. as opposed to being here in the room with us. I have the physical copy that was just mm-hmm. signed, Ooh. freshly Ooh. signed by the author Sexy. herself. I yes. see that on eBay. Um. <laughs> I was just about to say, I'll check eBay soon because I'm sure it'd be coming right up. So thousand um, dollars. <laughs> so you're you're. Research is very interesting for 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 a lot of. Uh, Ganj and I have spoken. Our our own research intersects with this in in mm. kind of uh, fascinating ways. Um, but maybe as a, uh, I want to ask you about kind of the some behind the music, how you got into this. But maybe uh, I thought it was a great the 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 the, the titular Dara Rasami. Who who is this person? And uh, maybe give us a, that'll give us an entry into uh, uh, time mm. and place. Mm. Okay. Um, well, Dara Rasami was one of King Chulalongkorn's 153 queens, consorts, and concubines. So, so 153. 153 women, yes. And Dara was one of them. But the reason that she in particular is interesting is that she's not actually ethnically Siamese. She's perceived as a foreigner in the Siamese court. She's actually from a neighboring kingdom, um, that was once called Lan Na. Um, it was centered in Chiang Mai. So if you've been to northern Thailand, you've been to Chiang Mai, um, you may have observed there are certain cultural differences between northern Thailand and, and s- central Thai. And it kind of goes back to this, um, this relationship between the two kingdoms, that they used to be allies of each other, um, neighboring Mandala kingdoms. Um, and at the time... Um, this is the 1880s, there was a rumor uh, that Queen Victoria of England wanted to adopt Dara Rasami and spirit her away to England and raise her as one of her own children in the palace, Uh, which would mean that 
essentially Lanna had become a British protectorate. And of course, when this rumor do we, reached Do we know Bangkok, if that is how true it is? Or maybe that we can't know? But well, we can't really know that it's true, but I've, I've done a lot of research on the British side and really scoured their diplomatic records from okay. the era and found a no record of it. I think that Dara herself just registered very faintly on their consciousness, to be honest. There's just like one or two mentions of her, and usually it's in the context of, you know, local goings-on. But um, there there was no formal proposition made. Um, I don't even think Queen Victoria had any idea that Dara Rasami existed. But there was a precedent, you know, uh, of the Maharaja Duleep Singh from uh, the Punjab who actually had been adopted by Queen Victoria, you know, from India and brought to England and raised as a, a young English lord. And that's a, a, a really interesting story in of, of itself. But I think that it provided the template for this rumor. which it could I, happen. It could happen, right? It was conceivable that it could happen. And I think that this was played up by, actually, by Dara's parents. I think that they may have been responsible for hatching this rumor and, and getting it circulating. And in your book, you mentioned that every single Thai language biography of her yeah. repeats this rumor, right? Yeah. So what, what do you think happened? Why does this persist, even though there's no physical proof? Yeah, what's the social advantage of this? I, you know, I, I love exploring rumors in terms of how they they work or don't with Thai history because there are, there are a lot of them about, right? And particularly when it regards something as sensitive as royal persons, um, a rumor can be a really useful way of achieving things that you can't do via official channels. And in Dara's case, I think the advantage was essentially for you know Dara's parents who were the king and queen of Chiang Mai to light a fire under the Siamese, to recognize their sovereignty, to value their relationship more, um, and to, to basically give more respect to Lanna. That there had been prior, you know, interactions between Lanna and Siam where I think Lanna came out really feeling like they had been used and abused by the Siamese. There have been several um, kind of uh, wartime pushes by Mongkut. Um, in northern, what's now northern Thailand, you know, against the Burmese to try and kind of route out any lingering influence that they had because they had allied with Lanna's royalty to um, push out the Burmese in like the 1780s. It was about the same time that Bangkok was, you know, getting reestablished, right, after the Burmese had sacked and destroyed Ayutthaya. So Burma was like their shared enemy. And, um, but Lanna kind of bore more of the brunt of Siam's military needs than the other way around. So by the seven, late 1870s, early 1880s, I think Lanna's rulership was just looking for a way to kind of like leverage their position. About when she's um, born, right? Yeah, she was born in 1873. So, okay. you know, when she's a child. Yeah. You know, she's she's not really an actor. She's not really doesn't have any agency in this whatsoever. For the um for the first. the history nerds out there might not might know this, but um what it, what is uh the difference between sort of the kind of kingdom and uh you and others, you know, talk about a mandala mm -hmm. versus a nation state. Like what is give us a sense of what it means uh, to, mm. of what, what Lana meant, what kind of a polity it was vis-a-vis Siam, mm. um, and how that differs maybe from what we might think now. Okay, I'll try and do that in less than a, a chapter. 
because I, I do talk about Lana in my book and, and how sticky it is to try and define what Lana really was and how it defined itself because it was immensely like ethnically diverse. Um, but as a mandala kingdom, um, as I guess the history nerds know, but, but I'm going to talk to the people who don't know that a mandala kingdom is one in which the power basically emanates from the center, right? And usually it's a city. It's almost like a city state, except that the ruler does have power outside of the city. Okay. But the further away you get from the center, the more diminished the power becomes such that, you know, there are peripheries out there where, you know, probably in between kingdoms where the, the inhabitants, you know, regular folks don't think of themselves as being ruled by this person or that person. Right. They're not subjects. Um, right. It's, it's not like a, a nation state where it's like, here's the boundary. And if you live on this side of the line, you belong to this state. And if you live on the other side, you belong to the other state. In the, the Southeast Asian context, you could actually be a member, like well, count well, your like membership in more than one yeah. mandala. A Venn right? diagram. <laughs> totally. Like I'm the yeah. dude who, you know, pays tribute to that king and that king. But, you know, depending on what was advantageous for people. But it's a very different way of conceiving a state in that, you know, the monarch is really the, the core of the power structure. And um, it's it's actually a, more, a very a much looser sort of form of control that depends largely on interpersonal relationships. And, and that's and the kingdom that, that um, Rasmi comes out of and, yeah. um, and that, that, Siam is is interacting with um, ab- absorbing. Right. How does that happen? And right. and and the role that I guess Rasmi plays. Right. In that. Well, and both Lana and Siam were both Mandala states. You know, at this at this juncture in history, like in 1870, you can safely say they're still both Mandala. Whereas you know Siam begins to feel a lot of pressure from the Im- European powers that are encroaching on them from all sides. You know, British from the Burma side and the French from the Lao and Cambodian side. Um, and their borders are actually eroded, like they are eaten away. The Thai lose territory, even though they're not formalized, formalized, um, sorry, colonized formally, they lose a lot of territory to the British and French in like the 1890s um, between the Paknam incident, where the French point gunboats at the palace in Bangkok and say, give us everything east of the Mekong. And the Thai say, okay. Crap. I don't want to do this, but I have to. Um, and there's so there's a lot of pressure um, coming to bear on Sam at this time, and they're looking for ways to push back against it. And they begin to see, you know, look at the Europeans. Kind of, I, I think they the Siamese have always looked to whatever sort of cultural paradigm, you know, who is the the winner, you know, the political sort of winner in that era because it, it at times it's the chinese um at times in the siamese past it's the khmer right and they adopt all the royal customs from the khmer court when they refound the siamese court and so there's always been sort of this orientation i think uh, on siam's part to identify themselves with the paradigm and the winner of of that paradigm if it makes sense too and in in as they go forward into the 1880s, I think Siam's really looking at Britain. They see the extent of the British Empire. They see that Britain is ruled by a monarch. Um, they see the colonial structures. Chula actually goes and visits Indonesia, Singapore, India, eventually even goes to Europe. 
first uh, Siamese monarch to do that. And so he's actively investigating the techniques of rule that the Europeans are using with the intent of bringing it back to Siam and applying it there and changing the mode from you know, away from Mandala to shape it into a nation state that is recognizable by European powers. So, so in a way, this rumor with Queen Victoria is fitting, right? In, oh, yeah. For this pivot, this kind of cultural political pivot that Siam was going through at the time. So she's symbolic in that way mm -hmm. in many senses. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Maybe it's, a, it's because it's such a central part of your book. Um, the uh, Tell us a bit about um, Siamese royal palace uh, about the, mm. the the position of women in that landscape within the royal palace. It's it's it, mm. it's fascinating because it's it's kind of a vestige of uh, that that doesn't exist um, Be anymore beyond well, the king beyond the king and I and its imagination. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, gee, where to start? Because I mean, the the grounds of the palace, like the palace, is sort of like the most like sacred powerful, you know, powerfully charged space in the whole kingdom, right? It's the center. It's the center, old center of the mandala, right? And it becomes the center of the nation state. Um, and, but, you know, as part of that concept, you know, the space of the palace itself was divided, you know, from outer to middle to inner. And there were actually, you know, divisions between these spaces. But the, really the, the hardest line was drawn between the middle and the inner palace. Now the whole whole palace is ringed by a wall, but the inner palace is you know, go you go inside that wall. The inner palace has yet another wall around it, and it even extended you know to the the wall. A wall was built between the middle and inner palaces, so such that that's where the women lived in the inner palace. The king actually lived in a building, the Chakri Mahaprasad, you know, this throne hall that straddles the line between the middle palace and outer, I mean, inner palace. And that's kind of where he conducted most of his affairs of state. Um, but that space of the inner palace was pretty much all female. And the women there, um, all while all the concubines and queens lived there, not all the women there were queens or concubines. There are actually a lot of women who were commoners, who were in the entourages, you know, served as entourage or ladies-in-waiting to consorts or concubines who worked as administrator, uh, administrative officials in the palace. Um, but the, these women are perceived as safe, un unlike, say, an, an unattended man roaming about the, this heavily female space. Is that right? I th yeah. If, if what you mean the, is the their freedom The attendants were all female. Yes. Even, yes. even the guards at the, yeah. the fence, the inside the fence, were women. Yeah. And they were described just as fierce warriors mm -hmm. because they're defending the right. most yeah, the inner sanctity of monarchy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the clone, right? The clone guards. Mm -hmm. And so the women were the guards, the women were the judges, the jailers, uh, the administrators, the managers. And um, all of the boys were kicked out at 12. Yeah. So when they have their top knot uh, ceremony Cut. a little bit after, they would... Yeah get kicked out because they were men yes and so but at that point that's when the princes would go out and establish their own residence you know have their own palace somewhere else in in bangkok and so and when they married it usually would be a woman trained in the palace in some capacity and so a lot of those women even if 
they were commoners from nowheresville um it was an immense opportunity for them to better their social status because if you were seen by you know some nobleman um or even just you know the the connections uh arranged marriages uh took place and and a woman could go from you know nothing to the wife of a noble you know with with very few steps in between but you know going through the palace going through the palace so the palace also served as this cultural crucible because all the manners and customs that women learned there they would take out to those households as they married out you know and as those princes spun out of the palace but the girls had to stay you know unless they could find someone of equal or better status to marry and there weren't usually a lot of those men available right weren't their actual relatives right if, if you're in the inner palace you're already at the very top the tippity yeah. top of social status so how do you marry up yeah. From being yeah. the king's daughter. It's very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. There just aren't that many candidates. You know? and, and I like your, you know, your phrase that they, they, you know, they price themselves out of the marriage, uh, the marriage market. market. Yeah. Because yeah. who, how are you going to, how are you going to better that? You know? Um, yeah. Yeah. The, absolutely. the, uh, um, w- what are the, th- I mean, there's obvious some, w- one function of, of having 153 wives and consorts is to produce heirs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. among other things, uh, what are, what are so, wh- the, 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 the political sort of connected tissue that, uh, the, the, the alliances, how does, how mm. does that function as a way of, for maintaining sort of real, like, uh, political authority over, um, mm. these, these, this, this mandala that's becoming a nation state. Right. Right. It's interesting because, you know, oh, it's like, from the time Dara enters the palace to the time she leaves it, it's like there's a total changeover. It's like total revolution in terms of the significance of palace women. Like Part of why you should read this book because it's such a pivotal where she, where she starts and ends is like modern time. Oh yeah, it's it's different. She starts out in a mandala and ends up in a nation state. It's um, like four reigns, but almost real. Yeah. like the book by Mamrata um, Pramod outlines this life of this exactly what you said kind of a higher ranking social common uh, socially higher ranking commoner Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. who gets a a ticket into the inner palace and kind of had more upper mobility uh, mobility in that way but but when i was reading your book i thought oh my gosh it's it's it kind of you know outlines it happening to someone real uh-huh. Right, as yeah. opposed to a fictionalized version in in right. that novel, yeah. and it's and it's transformational to her, to the the country, to the time period, to Siam, to Lana, to all the yeah. things. Yeah, absolutely. But the the real difference to me, like the shift, is from not just you know Mandala to nation state, but the way women functioned in terms of how the, you know, keeping the mandala tied together. I mean, as I mentioned before, it was all about the personal relationships and, and creating alliances that would last. And what was a better, more lasting way of building that relationship than, you know, actual family bonds? Right. Like you have children together, you know, bloodlines are, right. are, are produced. Mean, Queen Victoria herself was prodigious in that way. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Right. Um, but at the same time as women, you know, um, I don't, I don't want to you know, downplay the, the lack of agency that women had because most of these relationships were orchestrated by their families, of course. And, 
often the woman who went into the palace, it wasn't merely, you know, she wasn't merely serving as a diplomat for her family. She was also a hostage such that, you know, if her family should step out of line, well, you know, the king has power over life and death. You know, he is the Lord of life. And so a woman could be in mortal danger if her family disobeyed or actively There was an uprising somewhere. Right. Like, I know that. Right. In fact, there is another sort of secret episode of Dara's life where um, this is is also kind of like rumors, once again. But this is precisely why I think it's really interesting and significant that um, allegedly at a certain point, she receives a letter from her father in Chiang Mai. This is before she's had her baby, okay? So until she has a child, of course, she's free to leave the palace. But apparently in this letter, allegedly, her father tells her that, you know, the Prince of Cheng Tung up here is looking for a wife, and it really just might make a lot more sense for you to just come home and marry him, and you're so unhappy down there in Bangkok. Mm. And at this point, she's being made fun of. Oh, yeah. You know, the women are really mean to her in the palace. It's very early in her career. She's only been there a couple of years. But the timing is such that it looks like she received this letter about the same time she discovered she was pregnant. This is like spring of 1889, I think. And so Dara is understandably... upset and knows that this letter could be construed as um, heresy. You know, this could be betrayal, political betrayal, and um, she does not want her father considered a traitor. But she also recognizes that her life could be imperiled by this. And she knows she's, she knows she's with child. You know, finally, finally she's having the baby that she, she you know, this is the goal of the whole thing. Um, and so the story goes that she decided to present the letter to King Chulalongkorn and let him, you know, to, as a gesture of her loyalty to make sure that he knew that she was not trying to hide anything. And then the story goes that Chulalongkorn very cleverly um, addressed a return letter to her father saying if he wanted to come and get Dara Rasami from Bangkok, that was all well and good, but that he should be prepared to collect her body. The king does not bluff. And, yeah, and then it goes that this understandably kind of put Dara under a cloud for a while, that she was, you know, to, to discover this. Um, Even though she did the right thing. depressing. By, the right thing by giving over the... Yeah, oh, yeah. And I, I don't, I do imagine that, you know, she, whatever intimacy she may have established with this man who she was going to have a child with, how upsetting it would have been to her to feel that, he was still willing to, to at least threaten her life, even if he wasn't serious about carrying through on it. Um, and that would have been really, oh, it would have been horrible to, to, to live through. For a 15-year-old, especially. For a 15-year-old. That is a thing we have to keep in mind. It's like she's just a, a kid. Right. You know, but she's on her own in this foreign place. The Siamese is a different language from Lana. You know, she dresses differently. She eats differently. She's been training for years and yet, to go to this court yeah. and do this thing and have this baby and hold everything together since right. she was a child. Since nine, right? Right. That's when this whole and episode started. And now she's started. caught between her father and her husband. You know, it's it's pretty intense situation when you really reflect on it. 
Uh, but somehow she, you know, she powered on through and, and, you know, she had the baby. She was safe. It was okay. But, you know, things were not the same between Siam and Lana after that. It was made very clear who was really in charge after that. Not, it was not as much of a partnership as maybe Chiang no. Mai had hoped. Yeah, not, the, not so much the alliance of equals that I think Lana had hoped to establish, but rather a, a hierarchy. Yeah, it was still a hierarchic um, and patriarchal relationship. So while while this is happening, of course, on the on the world scale, you have uh, the, the French, the British um, encroaching, mm. everyone encroaching on sort of carving up um, the imperial like map, and in mm-hmm. uh, of course, you said that. This is impetus to Thailand to sort of um, self-colonize, crypto-colonization. Uh, oh, yeah. um, maybe say a bit about that and kind of the 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 pressure cooker that Siam was under, mm-hmm. and then and then institutions like um, uh, polygamy were under uh, mm. in this period. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh. Okay. Uh, well. Siam, as I mentioned before, you know, was dealing with the British pushing in from one direction and the French coming in from the other and trying to maintain some sort of territorial integrity, you know, in the face of like constant threat and around like, it chipping Burma away. Is falling in, in oh, yeah. is Indochina, it's all being taken over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the situation on the ground just seems to be constantly moving, you know, and I can see how it's getting increasingly tricky for the Siamese to, to navigate this landscape, you know, especially because they're, they're trying to na- navigate between two massive global powers that aren't even, like, really on site. You know, they're somewhere else. The power is emanating from England and France and just being carried out locally. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that, you know, right. England you and go, France... You could, go, you could go and sack Burma... Uh, in, a, in a previous <laughs> era, you can't go and sack London. <laughs> no, not so not so easy. You know, you need an army and a, a navy for that kind of stuff. And in three you know, years of travel, <laughs> the Siamese just didn't have a navy. You know, so they were they began building one though. But um, I think that that was also the moment when Siam's view of like who was the world um, dominant power, like it, it was, it had been shifting away from the Chinese. I think for a while and becoming more and more localized. But I think it was really in mid-19th century that Siam is, you know, begins to relocate their view to the West and think of particularly England, but, you know, pretty much Europe as the dominant global um, power structure to emulate. You know, they're the winners, right? They're winning. They're getting these territories and they're making money and they are expanding their control and I think the Siamese see that as something to to emulate. You know, it's if it's if it's a big global race to collect as many territories as possible, then you know you're looking at European imperialists uh, as the winners of that game. And because European powers were looking at the area through this nation state mm-hmm. as Lens. as new as it was for them to have nation mm-hmm. states, they really committed to it and <laughs> are looking at the the region through this new lens. And um, I think for maybe for Lana, and I, I was thinking about this in, in terms of, you know, in relation to 
to kind of what I do mm-hmm. in in the vis the visual representation of modernity, right? Mm-hmm. And you talked about that in in your uh, previous paper, uh, concubines with cameras, and also mm-hmm. um, in this book as well. In that the Siamese pick the the winners, the Europeans, and try to look like them and try to have that proximity to European mm-hmm. power. Mm-hmm. And pivoted away, like in the work of um, Pelegi, where he said they they pivoted away from the Indosphere, the Sinosphere, and they're committed to this top hat, Eurosphere. yeah, top hat, <laughs> gentleman's jacket <laughs> situation yeah. now, lace lace blouses, um, yeah. stocking and shoes, stockings ex- and shoes, everyone, stocking and shoes. Thank goodness the corsets never came. Oh, yikes! My God, we escaped corsets. But anyways, <laughs> um, but at the same time, we you have this mandala situation that's still happening and lana is trying to situate themselves closer to siamese right Mm -hmm. so you have this kind of a lego kind of train caboose situation (laughs) if i that's really oprah grossly oversimplified but for those visual thinkers right Mm. you have the the engine that's the the european powers driving everything and then everybody's just trying to hook on to that train and um see see where it takes them so where where does it take yeah so yeah i'm in that, well uh, this is kind of where it it connects to crypto colonialism where i can talk uh, address that question um which is essentially you know colonization without the colonizer so the siamese begin collecting these colonial techniques that they observe in dutch indonesia and in singapore and in india and chula Lungkong comes back to siam and begins, you know, immediately redesigning um, uniforms for government bureaucrats and for the military, um, reorganizing the bureaus and ministries, and decides he's also going to take on, like, rationalization of the space of, you know, the geographical space of the country, which is what Siamap is about, you know, Tong Chai's wonderful book. Um, but it's also expressed in a lot of kind of soft power practices as well i mean it's it's dress um there's also the use of photography um in terms of like a a technology of that um crypto colonial view um and that that gets played out in different ways um because i wrote another article actually on um photography and the wild boy of siam you know Mm -hmm. kanang who Mm -hmm. who king chula longhorn speaking of kings adopting commoners and you know uh the king chula longhorn actually adopted this young tribal boy from southern Thailand and brought him home to the palace as an experiment in, quote-unquote, civilizing a savage. And poor Kanung, you know, he was kind of passed around from royal house to royal house until he got to be, you know, an older youth. And, you know, it was clear that he, you know, was nearly an adult. And then he kind of got booted out on his own. And things did not end well for Kanung. Um, but the photography in particular is a really interesting technique because you, you can see in the photography of Kanang exactly how Chula Longkorn and other elites are utilizing photography in exactly the same way as European photographers everywhere in the world at that time, right. you know, where they have a particular way of framing the colonial subject um, and particularly in emphasizing their savageness, their eth- ethnicity, their difference, um, as a means of putting them in that in their right. place in this cultural being hierarchy. Civilized is only with in in relative to yeah. being a savage, being uncivilized. So part, uncivilized. Part of the part of the baggage of of uh, crypto colonialism is you adopt this hard racial mm-hmm. hierarchy, and then and then 
I guess the, um, as we say, uh, you know, the, if you're civilized, Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's trying to associate where on the, on the sliding scale. And so, so, and so you, you made the point that, and, and maybe, um, Dara is, is influential in putting, um, of course, no one's going to be above the tie in Mm -hmm. terms of on, on the scale of CLY, but, but, but the, 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 the Lana can be close, right? Yeah. They're sort of like close, but no cigar, you know, (laughs) it's like they are denied access to the same level of CLY as the Siamese, but at the same time, their willingness to align themselves with the Siamese kind of accords They do them get some points for that. Additional seaweeliness, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it, it's true. They do get points for that. And it's true even today. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I've been working with a friend who's, who's working on um, contemporary Thai politics and, and understanding what's going on in northern Thailand and why has northern Thailand never had, you know, never rebelled or threatened to secede. And there have been some fairly recent, you know, noises made in that mm-hmm. direction in Chiang Mai, but they haven't grown to the point where it seems to be an, an actual threat to the central tie. Right. And we talked about how, you know, we kind of theorize that it's because of the way that the Chiang Mai elites align themselves so closely with Bangkok royalty. I mean, the Chiang Mai royalty, the Chiang Mai, not Chiang Mai family, they are, they are totally yellow shirts all the way. Totally, well, not all of them, but well, there might be some outliers. I know you some know. not Chiang Mai people who oh. aren't. Oh, I'm we'll not outing later. them. I'm not outing them. <laughs> no, don't, don't. It's a big family. But it's a big family. It, well, yeah. So not Chiang Mai for those uh, of you who are unfamiliar with with the last name tra- practices in Thailand. So last names are fairly new, mm-hmm. and not Chiang Mai is kind of a a replica of the European system of saying Vaughn somewhere or, or the Vaan Duke of somewhere, the Duke XYZ. of, right. So not Chiang Mai lineage yeah. are all descendants of the ruling family of Chiang Mai at the time. Yeah. And if you're a commoner who marries into the um, Siamese royal family, then you get the not Ayutthaya. Yeah. Harkening back to pre-Bangkok days. That's even. right. Yeah, but I mean, so many of the princes, it's like, oh, he's like the prince of Nakhon Sawan or the prince so of whatever. So there's not Nakhon Sawan. There's not, not all the places. Yeah. 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 But it's sort of like, you know, Charles, prince of Wales, Wales. right? And Henry's prince of whatever, Sussex. I don't know. Duke of the Sussex. Duke. Yeah. It th- it's along those lines, but that's they, they weren't looking to the British when they constructed and, that. And I yet she... Um, Somebody like Dara is able to mark out um, both the sort of the trappings of some of the crypto colonial, the the fashion. Maybe say a bit mm. about it's very interesting the the her, her and her cohorts their take on that, but but also um, maintaining um, a lana ness mm. uh, an an ethnic uh, um, identity in hair and clothing and other parts yeah. that were that were distinctly kind of unique, and I found that pretty fascinating. Yeah. Well, and one thing I didn't get to talk about in the talk, actually, was that Dara wasn't actually the only Chiang Mai woman that was a consort during this era. There was another. There was another. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, bum, bum, bum. Uh, I know. There is another. This is the, this is the end of season one <laughs> in the Netflix series, you guys. I like, know. Cliffhanger. There's another. <laughs> there is another, as Yoda says. Um, but there was. There was another. In fact, she was 
a little older than Dara, and she'd arrived a couple years earlier. She already had a child with King Chul on Corrin. Um, and she also never progressed different past Different royal the, family? Or no, a different, but a different elite family. She just okay. wasn't from the uh, the royal family. I think she, she might not have been from Chiang Mai. Maybe she was from Lumpung or Lumpun, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Anyway, uh, so she was in the palace had a child with the king. She had arrived, though, in the service of another consort, and who was Siamese. And as such, she had to cut her hair, and she had to oh. assume Siamese dress to serve in that woman's entourage. And then after her child was born, she kept it up. So she had the trappings of the Siamese way. Yeah, and yet she was a Chiang Mai, you know, a Lan Na woman, right? Um now, and then Dara comes along, and Dara maintains Does whatever she pleases. Yeah, she maintains even at it, even though it is like at great personal cost because she's constantly reminded of what an outsider she is, and that she's never going to be one of them, and um, that some of her stuff is just considered disgusting <laughs> to the Siamese. You fish paste stinker. <laughs> um, and so I kind of understand why the first woman opted to just. Once her hair was cut, she just kind of gave up. And I could see why. It was just her. Right. Like, it's just her against, like, 151 other palace women who are Siamese who are going to give her hell every time they see her. No. But I believe she was friends with Dara, and they. I think they spent time together. I think, actually, Dara may have helped raise this woman's, this woman's son. But... Dara, I thought a lot about why did Dara maintain this difference when it was so difficult? And a friend was like, well, why wouldn't King Chulalongkorn want her to maintain that difference? I think he wanted her to because it reflected well on him. It reflected on his the power of Siam right. to create this alliance and its enduring value. And so it would have pleased the king for her to maintain this ethnic difference. But I think it's really a very different equation depending on your level of prestige. Like Dara brought all of this status into the palace with her, whereas this other woman didn't. You know, she was far, far down the totem pole in terms of, you know, her status coming in. Her parents were not royal anywhere, (laughs) I don't think. So it was very different. But I think that over time, Dara's own ideas about the value of her ethnic difference also change that i think at the beginning it was just kind of a pain but a necessary thing to maintain her home nation's status and um but i think by the end of her career there it was more about well how are we going to push back successfully against the siamese and maintain something of ourselves given this crypto-colonial effort to kind of Siamize everything. You know, everything becomes Siamese. And so um, she becomes kind of a cultural booster. In fact, you know, I kind of speculate at one point that maybe she was sort of self-orientalizing, mm-hmm. you know, like she's intentionally playing up right. the ethnic difference. Well, and I wonder, too, because she is in the thick of it. So at that time, the the palace and, and the Siamese court was actively building Siamese-ness, mm, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. In in relationship to, in they're contrast to, they're constructing yeah. this Siamese-ness that they really honestly didn't have to talk about it 
too much right. before. Right. It was never a until concern. it was just given. It was a given, right? But when all of these European powers came, all of a sudden Siam and Siamese ness had to be something had that be was defined. tangible and definable. So I wonder too if if she mm-hmm. didn't just get swept into that, but because she wasn't part of that Siamese mm-hmm. construction. She mm-hmm. was like, well, I've got my own Lego set. <laughs> I'm going to build my own thing. What do yeah. you think? Yeah. I don't need your toys. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting the because I mentioned um, how she becomes the model, the template for uh, Saukrofa. Right. Right. The Thai version of Madame Butterfly, wherein, you know, it's the Chiang Mai woman who's the tragic heroine, you know, against the Siamese soldier who's like the bad boy, you know, who comes up from Bangkok. And that's still a trope. You know, because they keep remaking. I was going to say, it's still a thing. It's <laughs> they still keep a thing. remaking uh. Sao Fa, so, you know, this thing keeps coming back. And it's, it's so it's there in the public consciousness, you know, in the pop culture consciousness of ties, too. And, it, you know, I was surprised to learn. And it's like, oh, is that where that comes from? Like this trope of, like, the Bangkok playboy who just goes up to Chiang Mai to break girls' hearts and, you know, goes home again and footloose and fancy free. But um, as a Bangkokian, I, I can neither... C- Confirm. Confirm or deny <laughs> yeah. that this is a thing. Oh, my God. But um, I'm sorry. Remind me of where, <laughs> where, where we were going with that. Oh, her <gasps> visual difference. Oh, yes. And, and her, so, her hair was also like saving yeah. about the, the so long what, hair yeah. of the... Uh, so what did she yeah. look like and why why does it matter and how was it different and what does oh, it yes. all mean? Yes. <laughs> what does it all mean? <laughs> um, so she looked very different from her Siamese counterparts. Um, in the mid to late 19th century Siamese elite women, the hairstyle was called the flank haircut. It was kind of shaved around the sides, like up to about your ears, the tops of your ears. And then you kind of had a, a cap of longer hair on top. It's actually very fashionable today. It's actually in style Super now. fashionable right now. Yes, yes, it is. But it was kind of the same haircut for both men and women. And a lot of Westerners... On first visiting Siam in, in the old days, you know, that was their first comment was the women look just like the men because Siamese women also wore chongkaban, which is like a kind of a, a, a tied up trouser like garment. And they were topless. Men were topless. No shoes, no socks. It was kind of like, yeah. well, what's the difference between wow. you know, the way yeah. the men Europeans, and women dress? Um, were uncomfortable with their own inability to tell people yes. apart. Exactly. Because obviously people could tell people apart. Yeah. Just yeah. not them. So, it, yeah, I mean, I haven't even touched on, you know, the importation of gender categories in this yes. whole formulation. Because that's definitely, definitely part of this. But um, Dara and her, her ladies-in-waiting... Um, Dara wore her hair long, like Lana women did, and was tied up in a bun on, on the back of the head or top of the head. Um, they generally wore kind of a the white fitted cotton jacket or blouse. It was fashionable in the 1870s. And then a skirt, like a tube skirt called pasin, um, generally with a horizontal stripe pattern in the, the body of the, the skirt. And then the hem on the fancier version like a dressier version would be uh, sewn with tinjok, which is a supplementary weft, you know, hand woven textile. Beautiful. It's really complicated and it's really beautiful. And it could be woven with um, gold or silver thread as well if you wanted a super elite version. And Dara had a bunch of those. Um, so Dara was visually uh, immediately like distinguishable from Siamese women. 
just like even to Europeans, even to <laughs> Europeans who probably thought <laughs> who didn't know what wow, was going she on. She looks much more, you know, womanly to me because you know she her the aesthetic of Lana women's dress just aligned more. It was just more parallel with Western women's fashion at the right. time, but it was. Ironically, the British were making men cut their hair in, in Burma <laughs> along the same time that they were just yeah. bothered by short hair on women um, in Thailand. So they were just confused in uh, general. Well, you know, the, the Europeans have long liked to denigrate the masculinity of Asian men for wearing sarongs and skirt-like lower garments, which are just so much more common everywhere else in the world. Y'all, it's hot there, man. It's and hot! It's breezy. Every time I'm in a sarong, I'm like, how did I get tricked into pants? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Blame your ancestors. Come Blame on! Your ancestors. I know. God. I mean... The Scots had it right, okay? Yeah. Okay, but that didn't they make sense because it's cold there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but wool. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Anyway, so Sorry. back to Southeast that. Asia. Say, say, say a bit about the, you know, the, I mean, your, 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 some of your other work, and which bleeds into this book, uh, Concubines with Cameras, like the, mm. the, um, the kind of the, the way that this, this very, I mean, you're not idealizing it as the, as a powerful women's space. However, mm. It did offer very unique where women took on roles where they couldn't have taken outside mm. of this cloistered mm. era, where they're doing things, where they're, you know, they're staging, for, you know, photographs. Know. They're, they're running from top to bottom. So say a bit about mm -hmm. that world. It's kind of mm. really an interesting um, microcosm. It is an interesting microcosm. And, you know, I remember when my husband originally read my dissertation, um, and he's not a historian. He's not an academic or anything. He, he his reflection Just was a quick shout out to civilian partners <laughs> who put up with us, who bravely go. We are sorry, <laughs> but we are so thankful. Go on. Absolutely. But, you know, his reflection was, wow, actually, you know, for the time, these women had a lot more personal agency than European women did. Um, you know, if you think about, you know, the king's mistresses and, you know, Britain or France or, or wherever, they were strictly, the lines were drawn. They were outside the structure of power. Their children could not have political power, right? They could not inherit the throne, at least in the Siamese context, in the Southeast Asian context. Right. Like women are valued as partners, as mothers of future um, rulers, as the mothers and, and bearers of future culture and customs. They didn't have the purity you culture know. sort of, maybe it's Christianity that brings that veneer of like, mm -hmm. well, if she wasn't mm -hmm. an official wife, then we can't count that heirs where the right. Siam, it's like, that's a good heir. Like, <laughs> I know. It's viable. We just need yeah. a viable pool. We yeah. need a good pool of candidates, which in many ways is a very smart strategy. You know, you don't, if you pick... A bad winner, you know, at at birth. I mean, how can you know when a baby is born if just, that, that child will be a good ruler? Just go to the Kunsthistorische in Vienna and look at the Habsburg who only <laughs> only right. interbred with only oh. I mean, and you'll see like maybe this was a better strategy. Yeah, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. <laughs> though, though so. the 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 marrying half sisters maybe not best for yeah. the right. Yeah, it had, may have had yeah. some impacts on uh, yeah later <laughs> later heirs to the throne but um to go back to like you know women's agency um women no they they weren't necessarily entirely in charge of their own destinies but it was generally considered pretty freaking desirable to get a position in the palace of any kind 
because it, you're, it's proximity, you know, and proximity is right. everything. You know, I, I joke with people that, you know, in Thai royal culture, more is more, and that's that. You know, more is more. You want, like, luxury, you're elite, more is better. More is more. And proximity is everything. Is, is it? It's all about your proximity to power and who you know and the relationship. And, and Dara comes from a long line of politically savvy, economically mm. independent, powerful women. Yeah. Right? And he, she was trained, you mentioned in your book that she was trained politically and economically and commercially by her aunt mm-hmm. before she was sent off to Or at Bangkok. least she had her aunt as a, a role model. Right. Yeah. And because so. her mother, it turns out that in, in Lana, the power structure um, really was uh, that rule devolved through the women. That Dara's parents, her father wasn't the son of the previous king. Her mother was the daughter of the previous king. And as the daughter of previous king, uh, she got to choose her her spouse, who would then subsequently Be become king. Kind of king and her consort and in a way. Yes, she was a kingmaker in many respects. He is just the king consort, and because Dara's mother was widely acknowledged to be the power behind the throne, that her father was a kind of a weak, wimpy ruler, and um, that Tipke Son knew the score, and her but her sister, you know, Princess Ubonwana who did not really hold a lot of um, political power, didn't play a lot of role, a big role in like the royal family per se, but was a really powerful businesswoman who utilized her kind of saktina, you know, income to, well, she was involved in teak logging, in liquor production, in long range um, trade care, you know, trade caravans to Burma and You're back and forth. Boss lady. She Super was boss. kind. I think she was kind of a badass personally. She really was, and I, and she and her sister didn't always get along. I think there's another novel in that, but um, yeah, Dara had you know exemplars from her own family and and culture, royal culture, that um, made it very clear that you know royal women could accomplish quite a lot, you know, and we could have power and agency. And so I sometimes feel really bad for Dara that she, you know, knowing this. That she left that system. She had to, she had to leave it. Yeah, that she had to kind of renounce that to, to do what she did in the Siamese inner palace. But in a way, she still was the kingmaker. In a way, yeah. Because, right? Her husband was still became king of Lana. Yeah, ultimately, Ultimately, and I wonder if, if if that system, if if maybe Julalongkorn knew, right, that you have to marry the daughter oh, in Lana yeah. to be the king, and he in mm-hmm. in his mm-hmm. kind of roundabout way or maybe in direct ways, mm-hmm. he followed the Lana tradition of having a legitimate claim yeah. to the Lana kingdom. Yeah, yeah. I think I mentioned that in sort of a sideways fashion at some point in the book, but. Yeah, not I as got, not as gracefully as you book. just did. I got it from the book. So I got it from you. <laughs> oh, so, okay. so that all that money built her this beautiful palace mm-hmm. later, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and one way in which she did have an advantage over the Siamese women was she had her own money. Um, the reason she was friends with Prince Dumrong is because he was Minister of the Interior, which managed forests and forest leases. And f- teak logging was basically the main source of income for the Chiang Mai royal family. And so she got quite a considerable income 
and it always came through Prince Dumrong. He would dispense her funds to her. Um, and so she always had money. She always had money. But, in fact, there's this one rumor, uh, this one story about her, and there's a couple of versions of it, that um, some Muslim diamond merchants came to the palace to try and sell their wares to the, the royal women, and they went from house to house getting turned down till they got to Dara's house. And then she bought everything they had. And there's two different endings to the story. A, ending A, is that she had the diamonds made into dog collars for her dogs. Because that's how you okay. flex. That's a power move. That's yeah. a power move. And option B, the other the other ending is that she had those diamonds sewn into the teen joke around the border of her pasin skirt. And that... Boss moves either way. That one yeah. kind of tends to be associated with her promotion at the end of Chula Lungkorn's life that... You know, then the other women had to to foul, right? They had to bow down to her, and the idea was that then they would see the diamonds in the hem of her skirt because they had to. Because that's it's at their eye level. Mm-hmm. I was like, see, I love see what it. I have she to made, show you. That's what I'm doing when I, if if or when I get tenure, you guys. <laughs> yeah, diamonds, diamonds in My the hands. Get, get a grill. You could get uh, like a. Uh, um, that's right. <laughs> She my, was my, made. <laughs> my wage is not going to allow that, but go on. <laughs> she was Alas. made pro Raja Jaya, right? Pra Raja Jaya, yeah. And yeah. and uh, and this title was made up for her. It was totally made up, yeah, yeah. But it had to be different enough from the other high queens' titles so that they would not oh, okay. feel it slighted. Step on Siamese toes. Yeah, absolutely. Because the other three high queens were Chula Longhorn's half sisters. It's Mean so Girls. It was all Chakri. Thai inner court edition. Yeah. Okay. That's right. right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, great series. So <laughs> one, one, one thing that we should say that, um, and we, we, we alluded to it, that her new rank at the, at the end of her life, um, but, but she follows the, the, the trajectory of, of, a, of a changing Thailand, mm-hmm. Siam, later Thailand. But um, polygamy as an, instri- as an institution is kind of fascinating over her span. So she... Um, Chulongkorn uh, four has 153, and then tell us about five and six and what happens to the institution of right. plural marriage um, right. going forward. Yeah, well, um, I think in my book I give sort of a short history to kind of give you an idea where the uh, how the the population kind of waxed and waned of royal concubines, you know, over time. Um, even though there's not a ton of data, not, not a lot of great data for like the first through third reigns, but um, people seem to think that Anna Leon Owens like, influenced Chula Lungkorn to have fewer wives or abolish polygamy, and that absolutely did not happen. He had the most wives ever. But <laughs> he was the last Thai king to have that many. The most wives ever. Fail if that was his job. Yeah. And that, that he, was, was the pe- he was the peak. He was yeah, the, the zenith. and the end. Yeah. Yes, the zenith. But also, mm. yeah, because his son, Vajiravut, um, although he had actually written essays decrying royal polygamy, um, and in, and started out with one wife and intended to only take one wife, but when he was unable to conceive a, a male heir, ended up taking a couple more to try and you know keep everybody happy. Um, but when he died without the said male heir, his brother succeeded him. His brother Prajatipok, um, Rama the seventh, who was, was his monogamous, yes. right? So he he made sure that the the um, power would go to. Yeah, the succession of the flowed. same. Yeah, because I think it it was. Let's see, 
Sawapa's, Vajiravut was Sawapa's son. Yes. And was Prajatipok or was he Sawang Watana's? I know at some point. Oh boy. I feel like I should know this. It moves and I'm to Sawang. I don't. But um, because Ananta and King Bumipon were son- Sawang's off, uh, descendants, but I can't right. remember exact the exact progression. Anyway. Listeners tweet in. <sighs> what was I talking? <laughs> what was I even talking about? Oh yes, royal polygamy. So yeah, so the institution kind of dies out because the the monarchs are, of Siam are trying to demonstrate their siwili to the rest of the world, and they're trying to join this global culture in which you know monogamy is the accepted norm, and so they or at least you know, public monogamy. At least public <laughs> monogamy, but it, it does appear that you know the last few kings, well, last. You know, King Bumipon was monogamous, as far as we know. I cannot say anything more speculative, lest I risk my life. Well, I think I think <laughs> perhaps get sued. Well, and and the period that he came into power, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think it would have been politically advantageous, even no. if he was so inclined. Yeah. And um, in many ways, he followed the footsteps of of Dulalongkorn and Rama V in mm-hmm. placing himself as a contemporary yeah. of and and he also came up in a time where the european monarchies were kind of having a, a moment mm. um mm-hmm. of revival and kind of renewed popularity mm-hmm. um he's a contemporary of elizabeth ii and so there's a lot of yeah. kind of young energy yeah. coming into kingship and queenship at the time yeah. kind of the um, modern monarchs exactly, of the 50s and 60s exactly so i think yeah. he he came in at a time where i don't think even if he was right. so inclined that would have been acceptable politically. No, I'm sure that he would have been discouraged from it actively, even by, you know, his own advisors. You know, And also he grew up in Switzerland. I just don't think that was the yeah. world that he was in either. No. You know, so it's it's a diff- different time. Yeah. But so it is interesting to me that it has been revived. But, you know, as and I... And you mentioned that a little bit in, in how, how some of the practices during Dara's time is, is kind of coming back mm. and, and maybe mm-hmm. a role... A, her role could maybe be revived in in some reiteration um, for the modern time. Well, I think to some extent, local awareness of her in Chiang Mai has grown. I was just going to ask, what do they think about your work and and her story in in Chiang Mai? Well, you know, it's funny because it's sort of like Dara has a fan club in, in Chiang Mai. You know, there's a certain population of people who are very, very devoted to her, very devoted to her memory, who continue, you know, do dance. Um, I know some people associated with her museum in, at her old house in Marim, um, and who, you know, they assiduously celebrate her birthday, Chula's birthday, her death day, her daughter's death day, um, you know, all of these, these dates that are significant in Dara's life. But What's funny to me is she's still not as visible as King Chulalongkorn is. You know, you, you see his portrait in so many places. Um, you see amulets with his image for sale in the marketplace. If you want an amulet with Dara, you have to go looking for it. You know, it's not just right out there. Like, everyone's going to know who that is. Um, and I know that for Westerners, she is also definitely... Not very well known, but I think that's just part and parcel of, you know, a lack of awareness of just royal women, more generally speaking. But I think she has played a really important role in the revival of sort of Lanaism and Lana culture from, you know, say the 80s and 90s onward, sort of that post 
that moment. That's 1880s. And Christ. <laughs> no, I think 1980 and 90s. A okay. revival of mm. Lana, like the idea that, you know, Lana culture is important and is meaningful. Mm. And like that institution of Friday as Pasin Day and traditional yes. dress day in Chiang Mai. And, and the, the particular, that white blouse. and the Well, in the particularly the Pasin, the Pasin skirt. And I don't know what it is about that lower garment. It's like the top can be whatever. And it's sort of like you can play with what your identification okay. with regards to your blouse or your but jacket. That says Lana. But the Pasin skirt, that is so Lana. I feel like that's a Cat Bowie question. <laughs> <laughs> she would know. Totally. Totally a Cat Bowie <laughs> question. Hey, Catherine, I'm going to be there in two <laughs> I'd weeks. Like to, I'd <laughs> like to phone a friend yeah. <laughs> for this discussion. <laughs> yes, please. Absolutely. And that's still true, right? So. Interesting that you should mention the Friday. So for those mm. for those who are unfamiliar, um, a policy started in 2011 that mandated, well, not mandate. I just like that word because that's what it was, but suggested, invited, invited mm. ties to dress tie, quote unquote, um, on Fridays. And of mm. course, this invitation became a dress code. If you're a civil servant, if you're a teacher, if you're a government worker, this invitation was definitely not like an invitation. Aloha Friday. Like, but but required okay. for your job. Um, not just fun. Mm. You are invited to follow this policy that is now strongly required. invited. Yes. Okay. I, I, um, yeah. But it was never put into law at the higher level. But um, the the main patron of that was uh, is uh, Queen Sirikit, right? So Queen Mother mm. Sirikit. So. But the the tie, right? So if we look mm-hmm. at within the context of your research, all of the people dressing in Lana fashion are violating this violating this invitation well, or policy. But, but I think it also depends on how you want to define. Yeah, does it count exactly? Because I don't think Lana people think of themselves as not tie. I think that they're what we're talking about is a situation where there's like a lot of layered identities. Definitely. You know, like a hundred years ago, it wouldn't have been Thai, but now it is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I think it's also a really interesting sort of persistence of like the mandala model in so many respects where it's like, it's not about really about drawing hard lines around what is as opposed to what isn't. It seems to be very, a, a very permeable border and Subject to, well, it's kind of subject to the whims of the state at times. Um, or, or it can be driven by people themselves, you know, at the local level. And I think that the Lana dress movement has been more of that kind of push, where it was more like vernacular that somebody just decided on Friday they were going to start wearing pasin to school, to class, to work. And then it, it kind of spread as, as people decided, you know, I want to do that too. And for whatever reason. And I would love to see more research, you know, asking people to be, you know, to think explicitly about what that means to them and, and tell us about it. Because all we can really see is, you know, what what people do. We get the practice, but we don't always get the, the motive. You know? uh, that was going to be my next question. What are you, you got anything in the hopper that you're, you're working on? <laughs> um, oh, man. Future research projects? Um... I, I'm not sure at this point. I'm actually kind of considering taking a turn into writing some fiction. Ooh. So, yeah, because, you know, there are a lot of things about Dara's life in that palace that I don't think you can really explore in 
scholarly terms. So, but you know, my my novelist friends have educated me recently about the possibilities of fiction. The, there are many truths accessible Absolutely. via fiction. One of my favorite books is Becoming Madame Mao. Ooh. And it just is exactly what you're talking about is mm. that they're all of the records having to do with her are either don't exist or were destroyed. Yeah. Right. Um, and so the only way you could write about her life is kind of a fictionalized historical account to fill in the gaps mm-hmm. or to flesh out the, the speculation and the rumors. Right. Um, and you mentioned in the beginning of your book, too, that you did have to work just with rumors because the, yep. the royal Thai family didn't have the European practice of journaling. Oh, yeah. Oh. Royal women weren't going to write anything down. Are you kidding? What That's better way to get outed and blackmailed? And oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, it would just have been death, you know, to, to write down. Well, and you think of your, the like, ability oh. of like something like uh, this Earth of Mankind to convey mm. maybe better than any history book, ha- mm. like a spirit of sort of uh, an age in motion mm. at the beginning of the 20th century in, in, in that case, Indonesia. But um mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a there's a chance, like in in, in the the, the now and 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 dare I say, reach a broader audience than well, us historians. Yeah, absolutely. I hate to say that, but yeah, I mean it's it's true, sadly. But um, yeah, I'm a big admirer, I'm a big fan of the Buru Quartet. Man, I, I love so that series. Did you I, see like, him when he came to Berkeley? No, I missed oh, from a jam. Oh, I Prom really came wish. To Berkeley, it was so awesome. Yeah, he smoked man. like 18 clove cigarettes, like, like one hour in front of me. I think. <laughs> Oh my God! <laughs> and you survived the experience. I know. I know. There's only s- just, there's only a small area in your lungs that has fiberglass. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. Um, just a little bit. You can live without it. Right? Well, promise to promise to come back, Leslie. Absolutely. When you premiere Love your to. Netflix original, yeah, about that. <laughs> can we be background yeah. uh, actors? I'll cast yeah. you as some crazy farangs in Bangkok I'll or something. I'll just do. Um, I'll just do on-set language consulting. Hey, that sounds cool. It's a thing. And I yeah. forever regret my whole life of not picking up the phone that one time oh. to be a language. Yeah, they get paid $800 a day. <gasps> what? I know. What am Dude. I even doing with my life? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, you could be a novelist, you know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I no. feel like. Wait. Yeah, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> See, I've never been any good at like making actual money, so <laughs> that's why we're here at this table. Let's do, yeah, I I do like the little career chat segment at the end of the podcast. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can just edit all of this out. <laughs> just just cut it all. Oh, off. it's good. It's, it's good stuff. Well, th- again, oh thanks. We're, we're lovely to see you again. It's been too long, and uh, yeah. let's have Ganja Absolutely. back as well. Too. Yes. Let's all let's make it a thank you so occasion. much. I'm so excited that you came and visited us, and and that this book. Uh, you birthed this book finally. I was joking how it had <laughs> a long gestation period. <laughs> yes, very that, long. Uh, that that rivals an elephant. Very um, long. Yeah, I should probably say for the record, I started researching Dharadasami in 2006. So it's only taken me 15 years to finally crank this book out. It's wonderful. It's so a great read. It's worth it. It's Cornell a great Press, read. Look it up. G- give us the title. Read the title, Ganjana. So, Woman the- Between Two Kingdoms, Dara Rasami, and the Making of Modern Thailand. Oh, I love it when people pronounce the. I would get. It it's so literally my job. If I uh, <laughs> anglicize Thai, I get right? fired. <laughs> <laughs> no, Dara Rasami. <laughs> That's my job to do that. All right. See you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. We would like to give thanks to Tantracoon for the use of his track, Electric Can, and a thanks to our audio producer, Amelia McCoy. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you tune in next time.